Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. For our listeners in Hilton Head and Charleston, South Carolina, we hope you will join Dimensions Dance Theater of Miami as they tour to your area on March 22nd through 24th. Celebrated for their diversity and strong cultural relationships, Dimensions Dance Theater of Miami will make their debut at the beautiful Arts Center of Coastal Carolina with a program of signature works. A bold, cutting-edge contemporary ballet company founded in 2016 by former Miami City Ballet principal dancers Jennifer Cronenberg and Carlos Guerra, DDTM has established itself with a dazzling repertoire and dynamic world-class dancers hailing from various Hispanic, North, and South American backgrounds. The company's tour to South Carolina will reach beyond the proscenium and into the community as they share some of their signature choreography with local youngsters on March 22nd and 23rd. On March 24th, audiences will be treated to a full evening performance, a mixed bill program that will feature Gerald Arpino's masterwork Light Rain, a main staple of Dimensions repertoire since the company first brought the full ballet to South Florida in 2017. For tickets, visit artshhi.org or click the link in the description of this episode. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Sean Breeden. And you're listening to Conversations on Dance. On today's episode of Conversations on Dance, we are joined by Ted Branson and Rochelle Beaujean, Director and Associate Artistic Director of Dutch National Ballet. We are speaking to them in advance of the company's first tour to the United States in 40 years, which is to take place at the Ballet Sun Valley Festival in Sun Valley, Idaho. First, we talk with Ted briefly about his career and his directorship. Then Rochelle joins the conversation to discuss how they chose the repertoire for the upcoming tour and what they hope American audiences take away from the performances. Performances and additional events will be held this July 1st and 2nd at Ballet Sun Valley. Tickets can be purchased at BalletSunValley.org or click the link in the description of this episode. Well, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. We are bridging the Atlantic through um, the powers of Zoom. Uh, <laughs> we, we were so excited to talk about um, Dutch Nationals tour. It's the first stateside tour in 40 years. Is that correct? 
That is right. It's wow. been a really, really long time. Yeah. Uh, before we get into that, we'd love to just hear a little bit about your own performing career and your beginnings as a dancer with the company. Okay, well, um, I actually started dancing while I was studying in the United States. After graduating high school here in Amsterdam, I didn't want to go to university straight away. I had not danced. I was 18. Um, and I went, uh, I got a scholarship to go to college in upstate New York, Hamilton College. And I did all kinds of things, sociology, English lit, colonial history, and study theater as well. And I had, there was a dance department uh, at Hamilton College. And um, a friend of mine took me there one day and she said, you should do something. You know, you're always showing off at parties and you should do some serious dance training. Yeah. And I thought, why not? And after a couple of months, that's what I really fell in love with and I wanted to do that. So I first tried to stay in the States and my parents didn't have enough money for that. So I went back to Holland, uh, auditioned and got into the um, National Dance Academy, uh, mm -hmm. which at that time was called differently, was called the Scapino Ballet Academy. And I got in and uh, did three years of, you know, all the courses that I could grab uh, in order to sort of catch up because it was kind of a late beginner. And then eventually got into Dutch National Ballet, uh, to my honest surprise. I was not expecting that to happen. I was expecting to go into a more contemporary field. But um, I was taken in and uh, danced with the company for 10 years, um, doing all the rep, you know, doing different sorts of roles, mostly more sort of contemporary classical work, mm -hmm. but also the big classical productions. We're now doing Swan Lake, mm -hmm. and I was just at the stage rehearsal this afternoon and looking at that. I was in the creation that's 35 years ago that, mm -hmm. we, that was created. And so it brings back so many memories and of the whole period of when that ballet was made. Yeah. So that was my dancing career. I wonder, um, for people, we like to talk about this for dancers who start a little bit later. I wonder if there was what you see saw as an advantage and a disadvantage to that. I think like I readily think of an advantage being like, you must be very good at kind of seeing something and copying it and putting it on your own body. And is that something that came then to be helpful for you in your career? And what were some of the disadvantages that you found? Well, the big disadvantage was, uh, your body is already formed. And at that mm -hmm. point, I mean, we're talking about the late 70s. Mm -hmm. There were not that many um, men dancing. So it was much easier for a guy at the time to start late. Mm -hmm. One of the, uh, so the big disadvantage was that you have, you're, you're behind in terms of uh, physical development and also technical development because you, your body needs to learn things when you're young and absorb it. And you need to be able to train your body also in a certain way. And you can never overcome that disadvantage even in later so most people who like me start at a later date also stop earlier because there's a limitation to their growth um one of the advantages for me was that i had seen a lot more of the world than most of my colleagues and most of my friends in ballet land who mm. some of them were four when they really started ballet and they were that was all they did their whole life mm -hmm. so they didn't really have a chance to see or do or hear much outside of that. And I had done, you know, pre-academic studies. I had been writing dissertations. Um, I, you know, I, I was 
much more informed and that made me have a different view on on the art form as well and it mm. there were certain advantages to that uh yes i could pick up quite fast i could understand you know better perhaps than some others um certain things especially how the company worked you know what the the bigger picture was of that because a lot of dancers don't get that insight Mm-hmm. Um, but there is something like a, a physical intelligence that all dancers have. And so you don't need to be necessarily a, a graduate student in order to be, or a top intellectual in order to be a fantastic dancer, because it's a different intelligence that is required. But it's definitely, most dancers are really smart people. And especially the ones that make it into a major company, you have to be not just physically talented, but you have to be really smart in order to make that work as well mm-hmm. right so you said your career uh with the company was about 10 years but i'm wondering yes. since you had this sort of um you know a different life experience before you led into it did that open your mind then for the next step the possibility of being something like a leadership role like you, you hold now um well quite early on it was i mean i was always involved in uh, different initiatives i'm one of one of the dancers repetitive uh, the rep- representatives we started organizing a choreographic workshop i was always involved in doing the other stuff around the company and always you know opening my big mouth and and having something to say uh, i was not afraid to speak to our director who was quite open and and, and you know uh, able to to listen to different things rudy von danzig was a great person great leader and mentor and so he also gave me a lot of opportunity once I started to do choreography because I started to do that um, about five years into my my dancing days, my dancing career, because mm-hmm. I really felt like I wanted to have something to say myself. As a dancer in a major company, you're often seen as an instrument for the choreographers. You read on, you come in, you read on the schedule where you have to be, what you have to do. There's There's not that much say that you have yourself. And I was, you know, cocky and wanted to do my own thing as well. <laughs> so make it, starting to make ballets was sort of a natural. And after doing that for five years and doing more and more and more outside of the company, I felt I needed to make a choice between either sticking on there, as, staying there as a dancer and sticking it out or really going freelance and going my own way. Mm-hmm. And I chose to do the, the latter. And how long were you then freelancing for before you took on your directorship position? Uh, for seven years. For okay. seven years, I worked all over, first in Holland and in, also quite quickly internationally, all over Europe, even in the States, uh, in Israel, Turkey, different places. And I did ballets for bank ballet companies. I did things for schools. I did big musicals. I did choreography for 300 extras for the opening of the Amsterdam uh, sports stadium. Wow. I mean, weird things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything and anything I could do. And after a certain point, being a freelancer and traveling around the world was getting a bit tired because, well, I, I was in a relationship here in Amsterdam and I didn't see my boyfriend for like more than three weeks out of a year. That sure. was just not mm-hmm. really healthy. Mm-hmm. And also I felt the need to stay longer with the company and maybe take on a leadership role because partly because in a lot of companies, I thought 
it could be done better without wanting to sound arrogant. I just thought, wow, this is, you know, people are not doing this very smart or not very nice to the dancers and they expect all kinds of things, but you have to remember, and, and this is something that comes up a lot also in a in recent conference that we organized for ballet directors. Most b- ballet directors are all ex-dancers have had no formal leadership training and get, in a position where they are responsible for sometimes a hundred people or more like I am now and for multi-million dollar budgets without actually having trained for that, which is kind of bizarre when you think about it. So it's not a miracle that there are companies where people do um, take on a leadership role and exactly replicate how they have been experiencing that, how they've learned from their, uh, predecessors how they've learned from their directors so we we tend to propagate the mistakes of the past as much as the good things of the past as well and so yeah i thought maybe we can try and break that and maybe we can do things differently and well that's at least the arrogance that you have in when you start that sort of stuff so i got the chance to become a director in australia at a company called west australian ballet in perth uh, it's a company of, at the time, 20 dancers. Now they have 40 um, in what they were v- very proud to call the most isolated capital city in the world. So it was really far away. And I felt that was a good place to start and make mistakes because no one would notice. <laughs> no one I knew uh, would know about it. Uh, that's funny. Wait, you mentioned just briefly, though, that you have some, do you have some sort of artistic director t- program that you're yeah, I mean, can you tell um, we, us about that? That sounds interesting. Uh, two weeks ago, we organized uh, for the third time Positioning Ballet, um, which um, is a conference for ballet directors. This time, uh, we limited it to directors of companies only. In the past, we've done this in 2017 and 2019. It's a biannual thing that we initiated because I felt it was a, there was a need for people in the industry to come together and to talk about s- topics that concern all of us and that we're not talking about. Because also ballet directors, not only don't they have any formal training, there is no sort of formal association for directors where you can get together and discuss issues that you all come to. How do you deal with difficult dances? How do we deal, and that was the first topic uh, in 2017, how do we deal with our heritage? What, you know, what parts do we keep? What don't we keep? What parts are irrelevant nowadays? What parts are offensive nowadays? And how do we deal with that colonial history? Um, how do we look for representation in uh, a predominantly white art form as ballet, classical ballet? Um, how can we bring that further? Um, mm. All these sort of things. What is the, you know, what are, what is an identity of a company when you have the same 10 choreographers making work all over the world. Um, so this time, though, it was post-COVID. We invited only ballet directors of the, I think we invited about 80 or 85 of my friends, but only 35 could come in the end. And we discussed topics as um, diverse as uh, changing attitudes in dancers and a generational shift where dancers on the one hand want and demand more agency and on the other hand how do you deal with that in a hierarchy that classical mm-hmm. ballet is 
Mm-hmm. How do you deal with different expectations of body types? How do you deal with different expectations on gender positions? So a lot of complex subjects that people with different backgrounds and different companies, very different situations, bring their own experiences to the table. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Table. Rochelle, thank you for joining us. We're so glad that you are here. And um, we'd, we'd love to just hear a bit about this upcoming tour um, to Sun Valley, Idaho for the Valley Sun Valley Festival. Uh, it's going to be the company's first um, stateside tour in 40 years. Uh, obviously, touring is something that's only just now opening up to us um, after dealing with COVID for the past few years. So it's, it's a very exciting time for the company. So um, maybe we could just hear a little bit about um let's let's hear about the programming process for this so how how do we decide what ballets are going to make it on the tour i'm sure there are a lot of things that go into this you're trying to present the company you know put the company's best foot forward for the first time being seen uh in the states in so long Mm -hmm. you're trying to budget things we need certain dancers in certain places so let's let's hear a bit about that process of uh, preparation for the tour Yes, well, thank you for having me here. And um, we're very, very excited to come to the States, of course, and uh, also this prestigious um, venue that uh, lots of famous companies have gone to. Um, about the programming, um, it, it's always in negotiation with, but what we find very important as a company is to show our signature and um one of the the assets of our company is that we are always uh presenting Hans von Manon's works which um is um always also for the audience is a great treat because his uh, repertoire is huge he's made 150 ballets and um amongst those there are several several uh, evergreens which we choose for touring because we know that both the dancers love dancing it and the audience gets a lot out of it. And um, they're very timeless ballets. So I think the audiences in America do really appreciate his work. And I think that's that's part of why we're doing his work here in Sun Valley. And um, then, of course, we want to feature all the talents that we have in the company, uh, the great dancers that we have at the moment. So with the Hansa Manen ballets, we also wanted to present um, 
the Pas de Deux Le Corsair, because we have the dancers for it. They're guesting all over the world. So I think they should be uh, be with us on that tour as well. And the same goes for Grand Pas Classique. And then, of course, we have Vertiginous Thrill, which is William Forsythe. And um, we're uh, presenting an evening of his in June this mm -hmm. year. So it'll be very exciting because he's just been working on Vertiginous Thrill right before the tour. And so I think that's going to be very, um, very high level dancing uh, for the audiences to see. So mm -hmm. if I can just add, um, we're also bringing a work, uh, a really beautiful duet for two men created by a female choreographer, Vipke Kandersma, who is one of our young creative associates. Mm. And it's set to um, original music and original composition from a, a Dutch singer-songwriter, Michael Benjamin. And it's a very beautiful, very tender duet between two men that, yeah, has a lot of room for different interpretations. And it's mm. a strong female voice in choreography who we wanted to present as well. Wow, that's so great. How do you guys, the two of you, sit down and discuss the the repertoire that you're going to bring for a tour like this? I know you've now you've given us this insight into how it represents you. What are the logistics then of like how many dancers can we bring? That sort of thing. Uh, yeah, we just we we sort of look at what would be a great program to bring, how many dancers would that involve? Um we we were clear that we were not going to bring the whole company because the whole mm. company is uh, you know, 80 dancers plus a junior company of 16, we weren't going to bring all of them. Right. Um, so we looked at, you know, what is the size, what is a good number that you can still present something that is um, attractive for a big, for, for a large audience. And that mm -hmm. doesn't really cost um, the, the inviting company or the festival uh, mm -hmm. uh, an arm and a leg. Right. There's so much to consider. Yeah. Um, no, it's interesting because we always um, also think about the the menu, as it were. You know, like um, the performance is is set up in in a way that we have in the first program, for instance, Frank Bridge Variations, which is a very um, kind of very deep piece, which which sets an, a certain atmosphere, um, and it it then you know. The next number will be solo, which um, also will be danced by Alvin Ailey again this this summer, um, which is a, actually one long solo by three men on Bach, which is very upbeat and fast. And so that's a big contrast. And then Trois Nonciennes, which is a pas de deux, which is uh, very lyrical and very um, inward and um, reflecting. And then the final ballet in that program is five tangos, which is like um, a festive group work with also solos and um, duets. And um, so there's, there's that into account as well. Like how do you build a program which, which has a good rhythm for the audience? Mm -hmm. So not only are these ballets that are part of the company's legacy, um, but there are ballets that both of you, I'm presuming, have danced. You have a, a, your own personal rich histories with. So, in particular, the Hans von Manen works. You know, can we talk a little bit about your relationship um, to those ballets and how you are able to pass those on to the dancers in the company now? 
Well, I think Rochelle should uh, speak to that more than me, because uh, Rochelle was one of Hans's muses, and he created a lot of work on her. Mm-hmm. I've been fortunate to be in some of his ballets, but I was never one of the chosen ones like she was. Huh? And she and Rochelle is now also director of the Hans Fermanagh Foundation and as such responsible for organizing how his work is distributed around the world. So um, mm-hmm. she can speak to this much better than I can. <laughs> yes, I mean... Um, Five Tangos, which I just spoke about, is is actually the first ballet that I was in when I joined the company when I was 17. It's like in 77. And um, it was very special because Hans took me as first cast for the corps de ballet for the three couples. And in your first year, it is quite unusual. And later he told me he just casted me by uh, looking at me standing uh, at the bar in between exercises so it was kind of like um more that than than any you know grand allegro that i was doing right mm-hmm. so it was my first experience and he was really tough as a choreographer in a sense he was very demanding and um he put me through the test and um and i i made it and there was a click from first moment and um he he knew he could take risk with me. He could ask me things to experiment, to be open to, um, yeah, going further than just steps. Um, and so from that moment on, we always I was always in every ballet. And if I wasn't on the foreground, I was maybe part of the group because he just wanted me there to create. And um, so most of the ballets I've danced and um, and I think in hindsight, you know, we didn't realize then that we were creating all these ballets that are still being danced today. And so uh, because you're just working and mm-hmm. trying your best and and, um, and now being director of the foundation and I I've seen all the other companies and all the other dancers um having so um g- gaining so much of dancing his works and working with him and um that it's it's actually a big community because everywhere in the world where i go somebody has danced a piece of hans Mann or uh, is about to dance a piece of hans Mann or has become a director and wants a ballet from him so mm-hmm. uh, it's it's just very exciting to be part of some some a phenomenon like that, and uh, I really I'm I'm very aware of it. So um, uh, yeah, and passing it on, it's it's for me my second skin. So when I have to teach a ballet, it's it's I don't consider it work. I I feel like it's a, a joyful experience to share these wonderful ballets and. It's very. I feel very lucky because everybody loves doing them. So it's there's no um, there's no struggle there, and uh, mm. yeah, we're very grateful that we have such a choreographer in in our house at the Dutch National Ballet, because it's um, not happening every. Well, it doesn't happen that often. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I just wanted to add to that because it is it is really quite amazing. Um, you hear so much about, I mean, and just recently uh, new publications about people who've danced at New York City Ballet, who've worked with Mr. Balanchine, uh, whose work, of course, is being done all over the world. And Hans is like that. He's His work is being done all over the world and hundreds of companies are doing his ballets. 
and he's here and we know him and he comes into the studio and you know his personal friend i mean it's it's such a great gift to be able to work with one of the greatest artists of our time in in our particular field um so that's a real privilege and to be able to bring his work also to other communities is something that we're very well very proud of and grateful for yeah i love that story of him um Michelle casting you based on you know just your essence I think that that's uh I've heard that before and I I feel like I so I, I sometimes stage ballets for Justin Peck and I think yeah. I've done that before myself you know like you connect with the essence of a dancer just by their being or like how they hold their head or their hands or whatnot but um I'd like to get to that core a little bit yeah. more like let's know let's hear a little bit about what the quintessential Dutch national dancer is what are you looking for in a dancer and what do you think defines your individual dancers or makes them distinct from other companies shall I start and you can you can fill in because yeah. what we're looking for obviously you look for people who are technically proficient and strong dancers um and musical and all of that um we tend to have a very good looking company so i guess even if it's not it's true it's true we have really good looking dancers and it's you not can't help a the criteria truth. it's just the way it is that's the way it is you know it's that's um but what we want dancers with a sense of self with a sense of um uh, you know who are who can bring something to the table um and everybody brings something different to the to the table so we have a very diverse company but i think that's one of the things that would identify we don't we and and rochelle help me huh? just uh add to me mm. but um no frills no no divas although we have some divas but no <laughs> no foolishness uh-huh. every company has divas but you know, there's there's a sort of basic style that is very clean, that is very um, open, that is curious, that is positive, that is strong, that is not affected. Um, one of the things that is very important in Hans von Manner's work is that men and women are completely equal and that women are always equally strong to men, different but equally strong. And that's something that has also defined how we look at other ballets that we do. Mm-hmm. So... It's no girly girls, princesses, you know, there's, there's strong, real women and Mm -hmm. men that can be tender and soft and not just one thing. Mm -hmm. Rochelle, help me now. (laughs) You've said everything. And I think um, we even took that schooling, let's say by Hans van Manen and past Rudy van Danzig to look at dancers as people. Um, and what they can bring as artists rather than just the picture of the body. Um, I think we also try to do that with with, um, our uh, classics and um, creating new classics or revising, revisiting the classics in such a way that they stay um, applicable to this time and age. So I think it goes further than just how we see dancers, but it also goes into how what repertoire do we choose um how do we we see classical ballet in the future uh it's it's the whole thing right ted it's it's um yeah absolutely vision. it's a vision 
Yeah, and it has to do with you know dance as a as an independent art form that where that speaks for itself that doesn't necessarily need a story, um, or it doesn't necessarily need to be pretty, mm-hmm. and it, it's not dance is not decorative. Dance always has subtext, and there is you know we're speaking with our bodies, we're speaking with um, that's our language, and it it can be a very and the language can be used to say many different things, and we can go from very abstract works like some of Balanchine's black and white ballets to, to also story ballets, but it's never, it's the language. It's this, it's the dance that then tells the story. It's not about the sets and the costumes and the this and that. It's mm-hmm. always the dance that's at the, the heart of everything. And I think in that sense, we, we do feel an affinity also with uh, a lot of the, with, with what, Balanchine did in, in New York and how he has influenced generations of choreographers. Mm-hmm. Um, and someone like you mentioned, Justin, just now, Justin Peck, who I, whose work I really admire. And we've done uh, work with him before of his before. And we, you know, we plan to do more of that. That's the sort of um, um, idea of dance as a, as a contemporary and classical ballet, especially as a contemporary art form that exists in and of itself mm. and that's uh, that's really accessible and interesting and for a lot for a large group of people right so um Rochelle before you joined us we were talking with Ted about some of the um work that you guys are doing to collaborate with artistic directors and kind of like you're talking about push that change that conversation maybe push that conversation surrounding classical dance and classical ballet and so I wonder too then how you guys are working with your dancers in Han's work, maybe for example, to kind of guide this next generation that will end up setting his works that will go on to work with foundations. You know, that's, that's sort of, how are you working with them to kind of push them forward in that way as well? Well, um, obviously with, with Hans, for instance, there's so much um, we demand all over the world for his works that I couldn't even set it all alone and especially not with the job that I have now because that's more than 60 hours a week Mm -hmm. Um, so I go out twice a year for now and maybe later when I'm with pension I can go out more often and um, but I think it's also important that his his work lives through to the next generation and not stays stuck with me and so what we do in turn in the house is we have um, in in the recent years trained some of our ballet masters slowly. So, for instance, um, I'll be setting a piece and then they will be watching the first time and then they'll see the whole process. And then Hans comes in and he does the final supervising for the last week and they see what he wants. And so they take all that luggage and then maybe the next time they'll be the ones setting the steps and um, I will be supervising the last couple of rehearsals before Hans comes. And then, and then ultimately they will be able to um, set stage a ballet somewhere abroad uh, without me coming and eventually without Hans being there. So there's, there is a kind of schooling going on if you, if you want to call it like that. And it, it takes time and it takes, um, uh, a lot of conversation and um, it's uh, it's a whole schooling process in itself. Yeah, it's interesting. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm very happy. I think right now we have about between 12 and 16 stagers for uh, Hans's ballet. So wow. also some of them uh, are um, ex-dancers from Netherlands Dance Theatre because he made a lot of works there as well. So um, and they were there when they were dancing when when he created it. And so they can do the same with their background and their the people mm-hmm. that they know. So it's like, yeah, you throw a rock in the water and it is a whole puddle, a whole circle of rings coming right, out of right. that. Mm-hmm. In a way, this is part of the larger um, mission that we feel in, uh, as in developing the talent that we have uh, that is here. And it, it goes for dancers um, who we, you know, Rochelle's also coaching dancers. We have now some young dancers who are going to make their debut. Uh, in Swan Lake, as Odette Odile and um, and Siegfried, who came to us um, eight years ago, uh, just fresh out of school, and we've been working with them, and now they're doing, you know, they're now doing their first big principal roles. Um, the same way we give opportunities to young choreographers and make them ready for hopefully taking on mm. bigger things and developing as artists. We also are responsible for the heritage that we have, and Hans's heritage is very important and unique to us. So, being able to do that is uh, is uh, something that we do with love, but it's it's a big responsibility. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. I feel like we we may have mostly broadly covered this, but I'm just thinking when the company takes a stage in Sun Valley, um, what 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 it's the sort of core identity that you're hoping that audiences take away. What's going to make the company distinct to those audiences that in recent years they've seen PMB in San Francisco? What makes Dutch National um, different from those other companies that um, Sun Valley audiences have seen? Well, I think in the in the repertoire that we chose, what Ted was saying, you know, um, men, women, equal. I think uh, in the repertoire of Hans van Mana, he's He's been a fighter uh, for uh, emancipation of, I would say, not only men, not only gays, but also all women, people. Um, So, and that is, um, I think, our identity as a company through him and also in the way we perform and the way we dance. So, and I think... If if we're talking nowadays about inclusivity, um, diversity, I think Dutch National Ballet has has always, as long as I remember, uh, been a forefighter for that. So it's not even a recent thing. It's just in our DNA, and um, and and I think uh, the audience in America will maybe sometimes find it um, the repertoire direct and um maybe bold um but i think it's done in uh hans he does it in such a way that it comes across so natural what he does that you that you look at the ballet and go well why didn't i see it like this before so it's also very um uh what's the word in english toegankelijk um accessible accessible at the same time because he has a big sense of humor mm-hmm. so 
he puts things into perspective. It's not he's not teaching anybody a lesson. It's just very entertaining. Right. And before you know, it, you go down a different road, which is really mm-hmm. fun. So I think that's that's going to be what I also hope be- enjoy. And what um, we, we just this week I had a visit from an American uh, programmer and presenter who is bringing us to New York later on. And he said this, what struck him was our company was very diverse, uh, much more so than most other European companies. And he said, you have such good dancers and they're so chic. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's not something that I would have thought, but they're really, they're really cool. They're really, you know, yeah. there is a, a, a sleekness and, a, you know, a worldliness to them at the same time as being very athletic and, and, and open. So that, that was interesting for me to hear. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that the Valley Sun Valley audiences will really enjoy your chicness this <laughs> <laughs> this summer. And we're so glad that you guys took the time to share this programming with us and share a little bit about the company. We know it's just going to be fantastic. And the audiences are in for a real treat with all of you. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, thank you guys. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.